0: Our world seems vast, yet closer than ever. Distances shrink, but hearts grow apart. We find ourselves at the crossroads of of connection Connection and isolation, of unity and division. Have we ever stopped to consider the mark we leave on this world? What legacy will remain in our house, our neighborhood, our Our nation? nation? We are called to become radiant symbols of compassion and hope reaching not just the house next door, but also to distant lands across vast oceans. Let us embark on a journey together, transcending geography, propelled to love unconditionally, serving with unwavering devotion. Stepping into a divine mission together, we'll build bridges over division. We will redefine borders. We will seek unity as we look to love our our neighbors neighbors and and nations. nations.
1: Welcome to Cross Point and our heart as a church, our mission is to help people find and follow Jesus and we want to be a place where everyone's welcome because nobody's perfect and with Jesus we believe anything is possible and, uh, and before we jump into the teaching day, I want to let you know about something really special that we get to be a part of this week and, uh, and this, uh, this week in partnership with our friend Dave Clayton, pastor at Ethos Church and with Exponential Network, we're going to have an opportunity at our Nashville campus to host um, there will be two, or 350, 350 local church pastors and leaders that will be coming in and uh, through teaching, training, equipping, and learning communities, we're going we're gonna to have a chance to, to host them. And, and we feel like this is really special because, well, Barna did some research over the past year and they found that 42% of pastors thought about, vocational pastors thought about, uh, thought about quitting over the last year. And so we get to have an opportunity to host these uh, these pastors and leaders, and to be able to uh, to encourage them and uh, encourage them to thrive in their in their journey, and then send them back to their campuses. So I want, I tell you that because I'd love for you to be praying for those pastors that will be coming in, and so it'll be three different uh, three different groups throughout the week, and our opportunity to host them. And then uh, I also wanted to just tell you thank you because of. Generosity here at Crosspoint because of the because of giving to the last year's year-end giving as we shared that with you. I want to give you an update on uh, on one of our partners that we've been able to uh, come alongside and support. We we shared with you about um, the opportunity and we felt like God was calling us to help start and support um, churches that are in the metro area and uh, that were that were focused on reaching unreached people groups and and so one of those churches that we've Come alongside is Mosaico Church down in Smyrna. They are a Spanish-speaking church, and uh, and we love Pastor Miro Cruz and his family. Great church, exciting things that are happening there. They just happened to they just had to go to two services, and uh, this past weekend they're reaching 360 people uh, on a weekend, and uh, and they shared with us that over the past year um, they've seen 60 people baptized, and so uh, so we celebrate what God's doing at Mosaico. And, Pastor Romero, so grateful for you and for your heart and for, your, for the ministry and what God's, what God's doing there. And we're in this series, Neighbors and Nations, and, and, and as a church, we want to see renewal in the church, revival in the city, and awakening across Middle Tennessee. And for that to happen, it's going to take the whole church, all churches coming together on that same mission, and, um, and really with a, with a passion to reach our neighbors and the nations. And so today, we're going to look at the question, who is my neighbor? It comes from Luke chapter 10. But before we get there, I got to start out with an apology and just let you know I'm sorry because I left you hanging last week. Uh, started a story and I didn't finish. And uh, my 14 year old Bolton, he leaned over to, to my wife, Ree. He leaned over and said, I know what dad does at the beginning of the message. He's like, I got dad's pattern. He starts a story and then he teaches from the Bible and then he finishes the story. And at the end of the message, he goes, Dad didn't finish the story. And so um, somebody I was having dinner with on Monday night said, man, it was like an episode of Yellowstone, you know, where you just (laughs) you started and you left us hanging. And so sorry for that. And uh, and so I'm going to finish the story. Let me give you kind of a recap of where we were at. I was on a mission trip and I was a high school pastor. This is back years ago, like 2005. I was on a mission trip, kind of scouting out, a mission trip to take some high school students. I was down in Lima, Peru, preaching at a house church, got to preach with a translator there, a couple dozen people. They didn't know who we were, they didn't know anything about us. But as I'm preaching with that translator, there's a woman that came up to me afterwards, and through the translator, she said, God's told me that you're the one. I'm like, so God told me that you were the one that will tell my husband about Jesus, and my husband is in the United States. I'm thinking the United States is a big place, lady. She hands me a piece of paper, I open up a piece of paper, and it says Jose Jimenez, his name, and then underneath it said area code 404. Now, my area code in Atlanta was 404. Come to find out that he lived 10, 15 miles down the street from us, Jose Jimenez. Well, I took that piece of paper back home, and I'm thinking, maybe God's up to something. Went and got the students together, the high school students, where I preached on Wednesday night. And, um, and I gathered, gathered the students together. I said, we're going to pray for Jose. And so we put the piece of paper down on the floor and we just all got on our faces and just prayed because there was desperation. <laughs> there was desperation. Prayer is where we put our desperation on God. See, we're either going to put our desperation on people or we're going to put our desperation on God. And God is the only one who's attracted to desperate. God is drawn to our desperation. So we're just like, God, I'm desperate for you to do something here. Obviously you're working. And so all the students, we just began to pray for Jose. Jose had no idea he was getting prayed for that night. And so we prayed for him together. And then I left the church and I was like, I'm going to call him right now because my faith was high. I could talk myself out of this if I waited. And so I called up Jose and I didn't really have a great plan after that. I just called up. And, uh, and he said, hola, I said, hola, Jose, my name is Kevin, yo soy un pastor de los jóvenes en la iglesia en Estados Unidos, y, and I, that's all the Spanish I knew. <laughs> so I was, uh, but through his broken English and through a little bit more broken Spanish, we were able to have a little bit of a conversation. We were able to meet up and I was able to tell him um, about meeting his wife. We met at a Starbucks, it was about halfway in between our house, and I walked back, to the back of that Starbucks, there was this little hallway that went to the very back, and in that hallway, there were just some little tables, and down on the third table, I went and I sat down, and I sat down across from Jose, and he had this little, uh, Translate. it was 2005, so it was before Google Translate. So he had this little device that like you would actually with a keyboard and you would actually kind of punch in the keys of what you wanted to say. And then when you came to a phrase that you couldn't, couldn't translate, you just punch it in and you turn it around. And it was like this weird game of battleship. You know, we're just like right there. And so we're having this conversation and he's telling me, I'm asking his story, tell me about your story. And he, he tells me what I, from what I gather, there was a recession that happened in Lima and he was unable to provide for his family. He had a college degree and he was a banker, but because the economy tanked, he had to figure something out. And so he got a work visa to come to the States, came to the States and he began to work. Um, the only job he could find was clearing, power, clearing um, trees that were above power lines. And, uh, and one day there was an accident where a tree hit him in his eye. And because of that, he was no longer able to do that work. And he carried all kind of guilt and shame about not being able to provide for his family. And, uh, and he, was, he was stuck in hopelessness and despair and all the things that he was using to try to cope and to deal with that. And, um, and so I listened to his story. My heart just broke. And as uh, so we talked about his wife praying for him, I was just thinking, I'm gonna share the gospel with him. And so I shared the good news. Gospel means good news. I shared the, the good news message that Jesus loves him and that God loves him and that God's pursuing him and God has a plan for his life. And shared about what Jesus did on the cross and how he can be made right with God. There's forgiveness and he can walk in that freedom. And I shared all that with him and uh, best I could. And then I said, Jose, would you like to begin a relationship with Jesus right now? He said, no. <laughs> I man, that's not the way I saw this, uh, this finish. That's what I'm thinking. And I was like, man, would you like to meet again? He said, yeah. And so we met again. We met for coffee. We met for lunch. There were times where he'd come to church with our family and go, ch- go to lunch with us afterwards. And so just over time, God just working in his heart. And one day I get a text from Jose that said, hey, would you like to meet for coffee? And I was thinking, this is different because it's the first time that Jose's asked for it. And so we met up at that Starbucks, met at that same table, I walk in, and this time I can tell that something's different. And with tears in his eyes, when I sat down, he said, I want your Jesus. And Jose accepted Christ and gave his life to Jesus. So that's just an amazing story of how Maria put her, her desperation on God, a praying wife in Lima, putting her desperation on God. And God answered her prayers and moved in her husband's life in a way where only God gets the credit. People hear that story and they're like, man, it's a small world. This week we hit 8 billion people in the world population. I don't know who's counting, but they tell us 8 billion people. And I hear that and I'm like, it's not a small world. It's just that we serve a big God. A big God who is pursuing every person, every person. He's pursuing you. He loves you. Scripture tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life, that you're the one that God loves today. So if you don't leave remembering anything else, I want you to remember this, that God loves you and he's in pursuit of you. And as followers of Jesus, we're saying, God, would you give us your heart for our neighbors and for the nations? We're looking at Luke chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there, turn there with me. Luke chapter 10, Matthew, Mark, Luke in the New Testament. It's the third gospel. And we're going to look at this story where Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus answers, answers this question. We'll pick it up in verse 25 says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we see expert in the law, this man's a lawyer, but not like the Bart Durham kind of lawyer. He's the, he's the, he's the kind of lawyer that would be an expert in religious law. He would be expert in Torah. He's an expert in, in the religious law, and this would be, um, he would have been part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, were, they were ruling Um, Jewish ruling council, and so they were the ones who who, who made a lot of decisions when it came kind of in the religious hierarchy, they were at the top, and when we go back and we look, and some some scholars say there were 71 Sanhedrin, some say 72, I find it interesting that at the very beginning of Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the disciples. Do you remember how many disciples he sends out? Seventy-two. So Jesus sends out 72 of his followers, which in that day could, could seem like, could look like that Jesus is undermining the religious hierarchy. A system that gave power and authority to people with pedigree, people with education, and people with social status, Jesus is putting the kingdom of God in the hands of his disciples. He sends them out to teach, preach, Heal, signs and wonders. Jesus sends out the 72. And I wonder if this expert in the law, I wonder if he was offended because the the religious spirit gets offended anytime God starts moving outside of the box. And so the religious leader, maybe he's offended. So he comes to Jesus and he comes to, to test him. He comes to test him with a question. And the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is brilliant. He, he answers his question with a question. Look at this. It's like, um, it's like question judo, you know, like, and so he answers with a question. He says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? In other words, you're the expert. Why don't you tell me? Verse 27, And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind. So he's quoting right here. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, chapter 5. That's chapter 6, verse 5. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19, 18. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. I want you to see what just happened. This religious leader, this religious lawyer just set an impossible standard. So he said, the way that you inherit eternal life is love God perfectly and love other people perfectly. Has there anybody who's failed in that? Anybody who hasn't met that standard this week? Anybody failed to love God and love other people perfectly? Look at your neighbor. If their hand's not up, and say, nobody's perfect. Right? <laughs> You just lied. But anyway, so we all, we all failed this. So this, this religious lawyer set this impossible standard. There's no way that we can reach that standard to love other people perfectly and love God perfectly. We've all failed at that. And he's saying that's the way you inherit eternal life. It's like, it's like telling somebody that's five, nine and a half, which was Jesus' height. This happens to be my height, 5'9". And it's like telling somebody 5'9 and a half to dunk on a 20-foot goal. It's not happening. This is what the law does. The law is a tutor that reveals, it's a teacher that reveals to us our need for God's grace. The law reveals that we're all broken. The law reveals that none of us can, can say, the only one who has met the standard is Jesus. That's why he could become a perfect sacrifice for our sin is because he's the only one who met the standard. And all of us need, we see, because of the law, we see our brokenness and that we need God's grace to fill the gap. But there's this religious leader set this impossible standard, and I want you to see what happens in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Think about that phrase, and he wanted to justify himself. We do that, don't we? Seek to justify ourselves so that we can feel better about ourselves, so that we can look better to justify ourselves. That's so why don't we look at a piece of chocolate cake? I'm just gonna eat this so it doesn't go to waste. It's about to go to, it's about to, go to waste. My waste, you know, like there's a... In that moment, it's like, I'm gonna waste that pair of pants I was wearing. Like, we, in those moments, we say these things to justify ourselves. Like, just doom scrolling for hours, and people all geeked up on Facebook. Like, I had to do research. I have to know what's going on in the world. Or we we say something that's rude, and somebody's like, "Man, that's rude." Well, I just, it was the truth. Everything we say needs to be true, but not everything that's true needs to be said. You said, know, "Well, I was just telling the truth." Nah, kind of being a jerk. But we say these things to justify ourselves, to cast blame, to play the victim. We compare ourselves with others. We're like, "Well, at least I'm not as bad as so and so." Did you hear what they did? Let's not talk about what they did. <laughs> Let's talk about what... We, we say these things to, to justify ourselves so we feel better about ourselves. So this religious lawyer is saying, and who is my neighbor? You just kind of hear, like he's just wanting to justify. What he's looking for is a loophole. And what Jesus does is he, is he, he, he asks him a question. He asks a question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, Jesus answers him. Now, let me show you something before we get to how he answers him. I want you to look at verse 17. Let me show you. We ask that question, who is my neighbor? Let me show you Leviticus chapter 19 verse. And this is the first time I've seen this. I'd never seen this before studying this week. In Leviticus 19 verse 17, it's right before that verse. And a lot of times rabbis would do this. They would quote a verse that what they wanted to bring to mind was the verse before the verse because remember, they knew the text. And so Jesus mentions this verse in the reply, but really he wants to indicate the verse before. Look at the verse before the verse, verse 17. It says, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. See, to understand the context of of what's going on, Back in that day, let me show you, me kind of look at the, look at the map and I'll show you. There are four groups of people. There are actually four groups of people in Israel, Israelites, divided up into four groups. And so the first would have been um, Galilee, then Samaria, Judea, and Idumea. And so these four groups of people, Galileans, Samaritans, Judeans, and Idumeans, these four groups of people were d- divided up, Israel all considered Israelites. And so that verse says, don't hate a fellow Israelite. But there was a rift that was going on between Judeans, between Jews and Samaritans that went back to the the Samaritans. And what they did essentially is they, they turned their back on the one true God, and they actually married Gentiles, outsiders, and began to serve pagan gods and pagan practices. And so there was this rift that was set up. The rift eventually came to two separate religions. And so they put a temple to their God on Mount Shechem when the other temple was in Jerusalem. The Samaritans actually eventually had their own Pentateuch, had their own Bible when the Jews had the Torah. And so there was this rift between and, uh, and there was animosity between both groups. So much so that when Galileans would travel from Galilee and they would travel down to Jerusalem for the festivals, they would go around Samaria. They would walk an extra 50 miles around Samaria, added on another 50 miles. That's like walking from Hendersonville to Dixon to avoid somebody you don't want to see at the office. So who's the person that you're avoiding? Who's the person that you've steered to the other side? Who's the person that you pick up your phone and fake a phone call? Oh, pastor just got real. We do that sometimes. We avoid other people that may, and sometimes we have cultural enemies. See, it's not just that this happened, it's that this happens. And this was what's going on. And so this religious lawyer is like, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus takes it back to Leviticus 19, verse 17. He says, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers with a story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So people first hearing this story, they would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. They knew the road. There was this road that went from Jerusalem to to Jericho. I've walked this road. And when you walk this road, you realize this this is a windy road, but it is a single track road like what you see in this picture. It's not a very wide road, it is a, it's a very small road, and when they walk this road, and they would walk this road to make this, this pilgrimage, this journey to Jerusalem. He says there was a man that was laying in the road. Now to lay in the road, and for you to pass by on the other side, it's not like six, a six lane interstate, it's one road. So to get around that person, it would require effort. Maybe even stepping over the person maybe even pretending not to see the person. And it said that there was a Levite and a priest, which these were religious leaders. And so these religious leaders avoided because in Torah, there was purity law that said that you couldn't touch a corpse. And so they don't know, is the person dead or is the person alive? And so they were, they were, they were, they were, <laughs> they were more concerned with keeping the tradition than they were helping somebody who was in trouble. And so they went out of their way to avoid him. So Jesus sets, up, sets this up with saying there were two that avoided, but then in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. A better translation in the ESV is he had compassion on him. This word compassion, it, it, it comes from the guts. It's like just this deep felt, just mercy and kindness. You know, that kind of thing. When you see something where you are so moved on the inside, where you're like, I have to do something here. And so Jesus said there was a Samaritan. And when he said Samaritan, that got everybody's attention. Everybody's leaning in now. And you said he had such compassion, he was moved internally. He had to do something, he had to do something here. Verse 34, and he went to him and he bandaged his wounds and he poured out oil and wine. Bandaged his wounds, which would have meant he would have had to tear off strips from his own clothes he poured out oil and wine, which were medicinal treatments for his wounds. And then it says that he, he went and he put the man on his own donkey, which means he had to get off and put that guy on and this, get him on the donkey. And he would have walked as he carried the man. And he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And a denarii would be a day's wage. And so two days wages in our day, and our time, and average income comes to $350 in today's equivalent. So he's taking $350 and he's he's paying for this person, like a stranger that he doesn't even know. He goes out of his way. He gives of his time, he gives of his resources, even his own clothing. He gives, he gives what he has to help care for this outsider, for this person that he doesn't even know, for this stranger, for this, this person who's in the road. He cares for him and then he and then he says he he tells him, hey, I'll pay for any additional costs. I'll come back and I'll settle up later with the innkeeper. In verse 36, Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? You see what Jesus did. He just flipped the question. What was the question, what was the question that the religious lawyer asked? Who is my neighbor? What was the question that Jesus asked? Who was the neighbor? See the religious lawyer is asking the question, "Who is my neighbor?" And Jesus is saying, "No, will you be a neighbor?" See, he flips it because this religious lawyer is trying to find a loophole. And Jesus said, "No, let's talk about your own soul. Let's talk about what's going on in here." Jesus is asking the question, "Will you be a neighbor to the one who's in need? Will you be a neighbor?" And the expert in the law, Jesus asked the question, who who was the neighbor? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. You can just see him gritting his teeth. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. There's so much animosity, so much hatred. He said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Man, isn't this this incredible what Jesus does? Like he takes the Samaritan, this cultural enemy, and he makes him the hero of the story, which forced this religious person to deal with his own heart. What this story does is it requires us to deal with our own hearts, to ask ourselves, are we being a neighbor to the one who is in need, to those who are in need? And I think what this does, at least for me, is sometimes I can compartmentalize this thing and go, look, I gotta love God and love love others. I gotta love God and love others. And what this parable teaches me is that, and what Jesus wants us to know is that we love God by loving others. That loving others is an act of worship. That it's not just like, I'm gonna go work on my own personal relationship with God. If my relationship with God is authentic, it will transfer in the way that I treat other people. First John chapter three, verse 17, and I'm going to go ahead and warn you, this is going to sting a little bit. It's a double-edged sword. It cuts me and it cuts you, okay? If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? John's challenging us with our resources, with our time, with our energy, with our attention. Amen. God is love. He's always loving all the time. And if we're abiding in him, if we're living in him and he's alive in us, that we're gonna grow in our love. We love God by loving other people. Evidence of spiritual maturity is, is not like how many Bible verses you can quote, that's wonderful. We should memorize scripture, we, we wanna know the scripture, but the evidence of spiritual maturity is how we love other people. Jesus said, you will, they will know that you are my disciples by this, that you have a quiet time every day. No, he said that you love one another And the reason that I spend time alone with Jesus is because I don't have a chance of loving other people in my own strength. It's how I tune up the instrument. I've not met many people who tune up an instrument after the concert. We tune the instrument before we play the instrument. And so it's attuning my heart to him saying, God, would, would my heart be attuned to you so that I can love other people the way you love them? I can't do it in my own strength. I need his grace for that. I need his love through me. And so Jesus said, well, go and do likewise. Well, how do we do likewise? So what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna give you three practical, practical applications from this passage. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The first one is that there are people all around us who have been beaten up on the road of life. There are people all around us who've been beaten up on the, on the road of life. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And there are thieves in this world of poverty and of divorce and abuse and recession and job loss and illness and drugs and illiteracy. People who, who have been um, robbed in life and some because of choices that they've made and some because of choices that other people have made and some because of circumstances beyond their control. And in that moment where there is need it's not our responsibility to judge. It's our responsibility to love with discernment, but to love. And so we don't pull together and make judgment on all. No, we just, we love in that moment. And we ask God, God, how would you have me love this person? Would you give me eyes to see them like you see them? And would you show me how to love them as you love them? And people all around us who are in need physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and it can, it can be overwhelming at times, can't it? It can be overwhelming at times. I feel that sometimes, just overwhelming. And I have to remind myself that it's, it's not my job to help everyone. It's just an opportunity to help the one that's right in front of me. Whoever God brings in front in that moment that he would give discernment to know. And if all of us help the one that's in front of us, then we can make a difference together. But there are people all around us who've been beaten up on the road a lot. Second one is, if we want to go and do likewise, we have to realize it's not enough to simply see a need. It's not enough to simply see a need. In verse 31, it tells us that the priest sees the man. In verse 32, it says the Levite sees the man. In verse 33, it says the Samaritan sees the man, but he feels compassion. There's not enough to just see the need, see people We feel compassion and then we do something with us. Um, Princeton Theological Seminary, they did a research. There was this research study that they did and they took these seminary students, these ministry students, and they took them in this room and they said, Hey, we want you to prepare a message to preach and want you to preach it across, across the way, across campus at the chapel. And so one group, two groups of people, they divided one group, one group, they told them you, you, you don't have much time. You gotta, you gotta hurry. The other group, they said, you got plenty of time. You can take your time. And then they said, go. And on the way to the chapel, they encountered a person that was laying on the sidewalk. They were like coughing, moaning, obviously in pain, obviously in need of help. And here's what they found. Of the people who were told that they didn't have much time, only one out of 10 stopped to help, 10% stopped to help the person who was in need. Out of the people who told, you got plenty of time, 65% stopped to help. You know what passage they were preparing to preach on? Luke 10, the Good Samaritan. They got set up. And they missed the moment because they were in a hurry. I'm convinced the greatest enemy of compassion in our culture, in our day, is hurry sickness. It's this compelling sense of time urgency. And the miracles, the acts of compassion, they happen in the margin. And if we don't have any margin in our lives, we won't have eyes to see the miracles and we won't have eyes to see the divine moments that God has set up for us. And so saying, God, would you slow me down so that I could see the moments? And not just see, but so that I could stop, which leads us to our third application. If we want to go and do likewise, this is my favorite point, maybe ever. We have to get off our donkey. Some of you took notes in church for the very first time right there. Look at your neighbor and say, get off your donkey. We have to get off our donkey. Isn't that great? For the good Samaritan to do the thing, he had to get off his donkey. This is where we actually put it into action. Listen, the, the hero of the story the hero of the story is not the most religious, it's the most helpful. But to be helpful, we have to, we have to take action. And it's gonna require sacrifice. And it's gonna require serving. It's gonna mean we go out of our way and we give of our resources and we give of our time. It's gonna cost us something. But when you look at Christ's sacrifice, when you look at what Jesus did for us on the cross, And then he puts his heart in us so that we can love other people like he does. You know, Jesus is saying in this passage, he's saying, don't so much be asking the question, who is my neighbor? Ask the question, how can I be a neighbor? Like, how can I be a neighbor to to those who were in need. God, would you put mercy in my heart? Would you slow me down enough to see with your eyes and to demonstrate compassion so that other people would see you? That's our motivation. It's for the glory of God. It's not so that other people would look at us. It's so that people would see him. And I think even more so, the reason Jesus gives this religious leader this story is so that he would see, you were the one in the ditch. Like, you ask the question, how can I have eternal life? How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus wants him to see, like, you were the one who was helpless, you were the one who is broken, you're the one that's in need of of a rescue. You're the one that's in need of mercy. You're the one who could not save yourself. So we see that Jesus is the neighbor. Jesus is the one who took on flesh and came and found us in our brokenness and in our need. And he paid the price. That's the message of the cross, that Jesus paid the ultimate price for you so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be healed, so that you could be made whole and so you could then take that compassion and offer it to others. And so this song is our prayer. I wanna invite you to make it it your prayer. I invite you to stay seated. Let this song just, just wash over you and receive this as a prayer and even make it your prayer with the lyrics on the screen that God would give us the eyes to see others as he does, that we would see the One.
0: We be filled with kindness and compassion for the one. love. Oh, how you love us. From the homeless to the famous and in between. You formed us, you made us carefully. Cause in the end, we're all your children. Tell me to love with open arms like you do. The love that erases all the lies and sees the truth. Oh, that when they look in my eyes, they would see you. Even in just a smile, they would feel the Father's love.